Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, September 2008 is one of those days that, or one of those months that our family will not quickly forget. We were living in Texas, and we had been watching the news because <coughs> there had been this tropical cyclone coming closer and closer, and we were all anxious to see exactly where it was going to land. And the news said, all of a sudden, it was going to come right over our little town. <laughs> so just like everyone else, we packed up all of our possessions, we boarded up the house, we grabbed the kids and all the things we need, we grabbed the dog, and we headed for uh, land inland so we could be protected. At the last possible moment, literally about 12 hours before it hit land, it veered north, and Ike actually hit Galveston, and there was devastation. It was actually ironic because it was supposed to go right over our little houses, and we went five hours to the northwest, and we were actually closer to the hurricane when it, when it hit land than had we stayed at home, but who knew that? That's the inability to be able to track these things. As a level four hurricane, Ike was almost as powerful as it could have been. It had the destructive power of the top level four hurricane. It had sustained winds of over 150 kilometers an hour. And what made it even worse was that it had a tidal force, a, a, a sustained surge with it of 11 feet. Now, our little town was only 26 feet off of sea level. <laughs> and we have an 11 foot surge coming in. Um, it did a lot of damage to Galveston. It leveled all the trees. Most of the houses that were affected were all level. I don't know if you've seen any pictures of hurricanes over the years, especially those of New Orleans when, when the dikes were broken. It's destruction. It's one of the most powerful destructive forces on nature, of nature on earth. It can literally take up hundreds of miles or thousands of, of square miles it's affected. And yet the amazing thing about a hurricane with this huge vortex and destructive force, the eye of the storm, what we know as the eye of the storm, that is the center around which everything else is moving, is actually calm. There's sunshine. There's hardly any wind. So when a hurricane hits land, the safest place to be is actually in the eye of the hurricane because it's safe. Now, this is the situation that Paul finds himself in this morning as we start looking in chapter 21 right through 23. There is a storm that has broken in Jerusalem over him, right? He's been coming back to Jerusalem for a couple months, and he stopped in different places that we've looked at, in Tyre and Caesarea, for example, and everyone says, do not go back to Jerusalem. It's dangerous. Don't go. And when he does get back, what happens? It's only literally a few days as he's taking that initial vow again that all of a sudden this angry mob finds out that he's there. And they throw the whole city into chaos. Now, what we're told here in chapter 21, verse 27, first of all, just stepping back a few verses, that these Jews, the instigators of the problem, were actually Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews who spoke Greek, they were coming from places in Asia Minor 
that Paul had been preaching at for 10 years. So places like Caesarea, like Ephesus and Tyre and, and Sidon, you know, all of these places, the Jews had come and come back to Jerusalem. We know in part that is the festival of the first fruits, right? It is one of those most important feasts for the Jewish faith. And so there are many who have come back to celebrate that. But there seem to be some who have intentionally followed Paul straight back from Caesarea. So they're coming from all of these places. They're coming into town. And I can't imagine them not grumbling around the well. You know, going to the water cooler at the temple and, and talking about this, this evil thing called the way and this horrible preacher called Paul and his, his message and what it was doing to the places of faith, all of these synagogues throughout Asia Minor. They were from places like Ephesus. And so when some of them see Trophimus, they recognize him as a Gentile. And seeing Paul in the temple during his vow, they falsely assume that Paul has taken Trophimus in and thereby defiled the temple, defiled their, their traditions. And so, yeah, they, they in their, their own mind, are, are raising this cacophony. They're raising up this, this mob saying, look what Paul is doing even in the temple. He's defiling it with Gentiles. And so this is the spark that ignites this firestorm around Paul. I don't know if we can estimate or underestimate how bad this is for Paul. This is dire. They want his blood. <laughs> and everything we read, they're, 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 they're stoning him, they're, they're whipping him. And he seems to be calm throughout the whole thing. They want him dead. But Paul feels that he is in the palm of God's hand. The only way Paul survives any of this is by the Romans. Because three times this angry mob try to take a hold of him, kill him. Three times the Romans are the ones who save him. To keep the peace, to get to the bottom of everything that's going on, the tribute says, well, I need to find out what this is. So he arrests Paul, puts him in chains. They even have to go to the point of carrying him under protective custody into the barracks. That's how bad things were. And this, again, is the context that Paul finds himself in. A firestorm of hatred that actually just leads our narrative and everything that's going on this morning. So in the verses that we just read, those two and a half chapters, Paul starts by speaking in Greek, to the Roman centurion, or the, the, tri the tribute. He says, I, I want to address the people. I, I want to give them my side of the story. And we can attribute to this, good, this Roman, you know, he's thinking, okay, well, what can it hurt? Why not let him do that? So he does. And the first thing is that he realizes, you're speaking Greek to me. You're not this Egyptian who has caused so much problem in the past. You're not that infamous criminal. And Paul says, no, I'm not. Now, when Paul addresses this crowd, they get riled up even more, don't they? So the tribute then takes him and they say, I'm going to really get to the bottom of all this. I'm going to interrogate him. I'm going to, I'm going to hold him out and we're going to whip him and get the truth out of him. In that way, you know, because the Roman was, 
they had a guard just behind the temple. It was their responsibility to keep the peace. And he says, this is an angry mob. It, it's disturbing the peace. You know, all of Jerusalem is in uproar. I've got to get to the bottom. So he takes him in again, and he says, we need to figure out what's going on. So he sends them to the Jewish council, the ruling leaders, the, the high priest. And, and Paul, while he's speaking there, he successfully divides the leaders into the two camps, into the Sadducees, into the Pharisees, the two main theological groups. And he, because he's able to do that, there is no decisive uh, one vote that comes out, this is the problem that we see. This is why he should be condemned. But again, Paul's words only seem to inflame the situation, right? So he's whisked away under the protection of the Roman centurion for a third time. Again, this is the storm that is breaking around Paul, a citywide riot in which at every moment, every turn, he's only ever a whisker away from losing his life. It's an angry mob. But during it all, what's Paul's demeanor? What does he do? What, what does he say? Because this is the spiritual truth that, that we need to analyze this morning. We need to grasp and say, what is important about this for our life? So this is a level five hurricane that has hit Jerusalem. But Paul is in the eye of the hurricane. His conduct is calm. His attitude is respectful. And his actions are calculated to bring the greatest advance of the gospel whenever he has a chance to speak. Now, we're, we read in chapter 21, verse 13, that when Paul is talking to the, the people in Caesarea and Agabus says, if you go, you're going to be handcuffed, Paul says what? He says, I am ready to be incarcerated, even to give my life for the gospel, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be exalted. Now, remember, this is not a fatalistic statement. This is not a case Sarah, Sarah. This is not let go and let God. This is not false bravado. It's not just words that are no substance. This is a calm, resolved embrace of God's will for his life. A, a deep trust that in God's perfect purposes, the advance of the gospel is going to happen and it's going to bring God to glory. So we have this torment... This storm, this hurricane. But the principle of Paul is that I'm ready to give my life for the glory of Christ. Just as the Spirit had directed Paul to go to Macedonia and not go back into Asia Minor, Paul, you know, was constrained by the Spirit. If I do not go to Jerusalem, I will be sinning. This is what God has called me to do. This is what I must do. So he has this deep assurance that no matter what lay ahead, even if it cost him his life, God is going to be glorified. Now, when we read everything that's going on, we understand the danger that Paul was in. His conduct should be amazing to us. The, the words and the verb tenses that the uh, uh, Luke uses to give us for this narrative, they show nothing but a man who understands that the world that's going on around him is being directed by God. 
there's never any anxiousness or a nervousness about it all. God is in control. Throughout it, Paul is composed. He's composed with all of the things that are unfolding around him, supposedly outside of his control. He's accepting things calmly without protest, just like his Lord Jesus Christ did as he walked his final hours to the cross. When he's first arrested and put in chains, doesn't, Paul doesn't protest. He doesn't cry, oh, woe is me. He doesn't try to self-justify everything. Instead, he waits for the opportunity to speak. And he asks, you know, can I talk to them? And then he asks a little bit, is it, is it lawful for you to actually punish me? So he's showing great respect. He's showing great constraint. He's being very sensitive to the reality, being very, very polite. When he's talking to the tribune, he is being respectful. When he talks to, the, when he talks to him, he is speaking to him as a Roman citizen. And when he finds out that the Roman centurion had to actually buy his citizenship, Paul never disdains and says, oh, you had to buy yours. I was born with that. We may read that into the text, but that's not what Paul's saying there. He, he never disdained the centurion for having to buy his citizenship. And you know what? He never demanded his release. He only asked whether it was lawful. Throughout the whole ordeal, Paul is at peace with the unfolding events around him because he's at peace with God. He is in the eye of the storm, which for him is the will of God. He's calm, not anxious or nervous. He's composed. He's not worried or frightened or frantic. He's polite, respectful, and civil in all things. Even when he gets slapped, and he, he, said he condemns the guy for slapping, and if, but he finds out that it was the high priest who told the, the, the gentleman to do it, what does he do? He apologizes and said, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that it was you who were the high priest. So there is a civility in all of this. Everything that was going around or going on around Paul was simply white noise. He knew it was there, but he felt he was in the palm of God's hand. God was sovereignly in control, and he trusted the outcome no matter what, no matter how grim it may seem. This was exactly what God had prescribed to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And so again, according to verse 13, he's more than willing to embrace it. Knowing what God's will is for our life and then acting in obedience is important for us to understand. We spent a whole Sunday last week looking at God's will. How do we discern that when there's all of these different words coming at us? You need to do this, you need to do that, and many, much of it can be of the Spirit itself. How do you discern what the will of God is? Well, Paul's situation for us is the same for us today. Knowing what God's will is for our life and then acting in obedience to that will, we can be in the palm of God's hand. Following in obedience 
knowing what it means to live a holy life and desiring that holy life is that first step. And then following in obedience to the specific ways in which God has called us to live out our days and the very specific ministries and the place that He has called us, He actually frees us from the cares and the snares of the world. It frees us from a life of tyranny to anxiety, worry, doubt, fear. Now, we're not in the situation that Paul is. But you know what? There are going to be many situations that are going to be, for us, just as dire. None of us would want it, but there are people who have life-altering car accidents who will never walk again. There are some who have debilitating diseases who lose their cognition and their quality of life goes downhill. And to tell you the truth, each and every one of us is going to have to face death. Do you want to be in the palm of God's care and hand? Or do you want to live your last days and hours in anxiety, worry, and stress? If we are living in holiness as much as we are able, we can have a clean conscience before God. If we are living in obedience to the very steps that God wants us to live out in our life, in the places and with the people that He's called us, again, we can be free from those tares and snares of the world. Because we're acting in obedience to the will of God, we can experience a deep sense of God's sovereign care. So that even if we have to walk through the very valley of the shadow of death, our hearts cry out, God reigns. Now, even more than that, knowing and being assured that we are in God's will for us, we can have an abiding comfort in God's sovereign purposes to bring about the glory of Christ, no matter what may be happening to us. But whatever happens, Christ will be exalted. And in that confidence, we what? We lose even our desire for self-preservation. And that's what Paul says. It doesn't matter if I live or die. These things are all ordained by God to bring glory to Christ. And so I'm going to embrace them. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of a freedom in Christ or that you even thought it was possible. But again, by walking in obedience to God's call to holiness we can experience a clean conscience before God. And by walking in obedience to God's specific direction in our life, we can experience a joy in our life that is given over to God for His holy purposes. And the result of all of that is even in the most difficult and challenging times of our life, we are in the eye of the storm because Christ is being glorified. And so I guess the first question to ask this morning is, what peace are you experiencing? How much stress and anxiety and fear grips your life from a daily basis? Do you want to continue in that kind of a life, or do you want to continue in, in the abundance of life that God has called us to? Well, I would challenge you. There are things you need to do. I would love to talk to you afterwards about what that means. 
And the reality is, it, it, despite being arrested by this, uh, uh, and having this angry mob that wanted him dead, Paul had such a conviction that he was exactly where God had wanted to be. Such an assurance that God's sovereign purposes are being worked out in all of these things to advance the gospel, that he was able to remain calm, composed, and even respectful. He yielded to events that unfolded around him, but he, he wasn't a puppet. Because remember, it was him that said, let me talk to the crowd. So this is important to start to think about. Because whenever he felt he had the opportunity to preach Christ, he did. And he looked and sought for every opportunity he could. And his mind was this, if God had brought him to Jerusalem to advance the gospel, and if God had determined the events that are going to bring the means of that glory to the name of Christ, then Paul was intent on seizing every opportunity to take the chance, to share whatever he could, wherever he could, with whomever would listen. Now, over the time as we've been looking at the book of Acts, we've seen several places where Paul has lived out that maximum of his life of 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, I have become all things to all men. Meaning by that, that when he's with the Gentiles, he acts like a Gentile. When he's with the Jews, he acts like a Jew. He says very specifically, his express purpose is to strip away anything cultural. Anything not essential to the gospel falls aside because otherwise it's a stumbling block. He wants to win people to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Nowhere is this principle more aptly displayed for us than in the verses that we're looking at today. He, he wants to speak to the crowd. And so as he starts speaking to the crowd, he speaks to them as a Jew. So to the Jewish crowd, he approaches them on the basis of their shared ethnicity. It's actually kind of funny because when he starts speaking, he speaks Hebrew, right? And everything just goes dead quiet because they didn't expect him to. These were Hellenistic Jews. They spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew. And even those who were from the city who were there were probably pretty shocked to actually hear him. It had been probably 10 years since he was actually back in, in any type of a leadership position and recognizable amongst those who were now city leaders. And so they were shocked. Only Jews who grew up in Jerusalem actually spoke Hebrew that fluently. And so we have now a condemned man or a man that they want to hang, to, to kill, and he's speaking to them perfect Hebrew. He starts by saying, brothers, fathers. So he's identifying with them. He's part of the family of Abraham. He's part of the covenant of God. He shares this illustrious history of God connecting and leading his people, of revealing himself in extraordinary ways. And then he gives them his pedigree. Well, I was born in Tarsus, but you know what? From about the age six, I came to Jerusalem. And I studied the law. I was studying it under one of the greatest teachers of all time, Gamaliel. You know Gamaliel. He's still revered, revered here. I studied under Gamaliel. He says, I was zealous for the law. So much so that I persecuted. I pursued man, woman, and child who were followers of this thing called the way. I used to be part of the ruling leadership of the temple. 
And I personally voted in favor of getting rid of these people, of killing them. The council can, can, can verify this, ask them. They gave me written letters to leave Jerusalem to go out and round these people up. And you know what? I delighted in persecuting them. I delighted in killing them. Then one day, as I was leaving with one of these letters on my way to Damascus to round up these evildoers, something happened. And at that point, he starts talking about his conversion experience where he met Jesus Christ on the road, right? Acts chapter 9. He tells them how he spoke to Jesus, how he saw Jesus in the light, how he was blinded physically, how he was healed miraculously by Ananias, and how he was sent forth to be a a testimony or a witness to all of those who would hear of what he himself had seen and heard. And the importance of all of this, he's saying he's making an emotional and a spiritual connection with them. He's making a connection with their zeal and his zeal that he used to have for the law and for all things Jewish. He says, I used to be just like you, but I met Jesus Christ. I loved the law just like you. I sought piously after God, humbly after God, just like you do. I was just as passionate in my faith as you are, just as concerned about these people of the way, how they change our cultures, how they they defame the Word of God. But I had a personal, supernatural encounter with Jesus Himself. Now, up to this point, everything seemed to be going well. They were listening. They were tracking with Him. They They were engaging with Him. But what sets them off into this murderous rampage again? You ever thought about this? What sets them off? It's not that he was miraculously healed by the name of Jesus. It's not that he had a supernatural encounter where he saw and heard Jesus. It's not even that he was baptized and became a follower of the way. None of that was objectionable up to that point. What sends them over the top is that he says, but you know what? God then told me to go out and share the good news of the gospel with the Gentiles. And that's when everything goes unhinged. And that's the point where the Roman centurion had to actually step in again and save Paul from the mob the second time. And just to figure out, get to the bottom of what's going on, he's going to whip him. And as they take off the outer Uh, robe and they get him ready, prepare to to whip him, Paul says in a a matter-of-a-fact way, is it really acceptable to punish a Roman citizen? Is it lawful? Now, Paul knew that suffering and imprisonment were going to happen. He expected them. That was Agabus in a very dramatic Old Testament prophetic way demonstrated this, right? But you know what? If there was any way to get out of it, Paul was willing. He's not simply resigning himself to the fact that this is my time of death. He's saying, there's another stage here. There's something else. So as a Roman citizen, he now says to the Roman, I'm a citizen. Is it really lawful to do this? Now, at first glance, it seems like Paul is just trying to save his skin, doesn't it? That 
at the very point where he's going to get whipped, he actually pulls out the citizenship card now and says, no, I'm not going to jail. You can't, you know, that, that's just not me. You can't do this. But why wouldn't he have done that earlier? Why did he bother putting his life at risk by saying, let me go out to this angry crowd. I'll stand on the stairs just <clears throat> feet from where they are, and I want to talk to them. Why would he face the consequences if he didn't have to? Why didn't Paul use his citizenship card earlier when he first got arrested? Well, the truth is that he raised the question of citizenship when it suited him. He raised the question of citizenship when he, exhausted, when he had exhausted the patience of the angry crowd. He used the, the citizenship card when he knew that it would take him to the next necessary step, and that is a full audience with the chief priests and the ruling council. He, he doesn't seem to have that opportunity when he's talking to the Roman. He doesn't seem to have that opportunity to share the fullness of the gospel. <clears throat> but you know what? He brought the Roman into the whole discussion. The Roman was probably thinking, well, this is a situation that belongs in the rural, in Asia Minor and with these Jews. It has nothing to do with me as a Roman. It has nothing to do with really as a Roman citizen. What Paul's discussion and talking to him about citizenship brings him into this overall question. Who is Jesus and why do they try to treat these people this way? You see that? Paul is moving the discussion. He's moving the, the events of what's going on by using his citizenship. And he does so so that he can now go to the ruling leaders of the, of the temple and share one more time. He doesn't know how many times there are, but he knows he at least gets that opportunity to share with them. Now, what does Paul talk about when he gets there? He says one thing. I'm on trial for my hope in the resurrection. Now again, some may say, well, Paul is just trying to save his skin. He knows this is going to be the dividing point between these two theologically different groups, between the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection and the Pharisees who believed. He knew that he could drive a wedge between them and, and in doing that, know that he's not going to get a conviction, he's not going to get a criminal charge against him. But what Paul's actually doing is he's advancing the gospel by appealing to the resurrection. He's highlighting the essential characteristic of our faith. What is Christianity without a solid foundation in the resurrection? If there's no resurrection, Jesus did not raise from the grave. If Jesus did not was raised from the grave, there is no forgiveness of sin. If there is no forgiveness of sin and no resurrection, we have no eternal hope for, for being with God. So at the very core of the gospel is a hope of the resurrection. And Paul understands he's not going to get a chance to share it all. He's not going to get a chance to share everything, a full, you know, well-rounded presentation of the gospel. But he grabs hold of that one thing that makes a difference. He says, I'm on trial for my hope of the resurrection. So when Paul engages with the crowd, he appeals to their ethnicity as Jews. He appeals to their, their zeal after God. When Paul speaks to the Roman, he appeals to their shared ethnicity as Roman citizens. And when he speaks to the ruling leaders, he appeals to them on their shared hope in the belief of the resurrection. 
What we see from Paul is really a, a mastery, a class, a, a, a expert class in how to take advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel because these are niche sections of society. What we see is a strategy of love to be all things to all men, to engage people where they are in their own understanding of who Jesus is and why he had to die. What does it mean to be all things to all men? Well, let's start by saying what it doesn't mean, because we know that it doesn't mean that we are to compromise holiness, right? We also know that it doesn't mean that we are to compromise with the world. We are not becoming more like the world, we are becoming more like Christ. But we're not doing these things because they go against God's Word, even if they give us the opportunity to share Christ. And way too often, I think, there, there are people in churches who would say, well, you know, I, I'm going to go out to bars and I'm going to engage in con- certain concerts and I'm going to do things which are not acceptable, but I'm doing it to engage people. I, I want them to know Jesus Christ. And that was one of the reasons why I could not go into the punk scene after I was saved. I, God saved me from that. I, I couldn't go back into that environment. But the problem is, once we start that, that, down that road of compromise, we end up in licentiousness, where it doesn't matter, everything goes. And you know what? We end up losing the original purpose that we said was behind all of this, that we're doing it to share Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? Well, first and foremost, it means to listen. We're to be eager, to, you know what? Way too often, we're too eager to engage people. We don't listen to them. We don't hear their thoughts. We don't find out where they are. We simply want to blurt out everything that we know about Jesus Christ because they have such a great need. And so that's our first and and greatest problem is that we don't listen. But you know what? By listening, by discerning where they are, what they understand of Christianity, what they grasp of it, and then finding a commonality with them, we actually are able to engage with them and help them understand, actually find those who are truly seeking Jesus Christ and help them to find Him. We're to show compassion and empathy. That is real, genuine care for other people. Now, it, it, it should go without saying that as Christians, we would want to care and, and show compassion to everybody. But you know what? Too often that goes by the wayside. The passion of the moment, we get wrapped up in just blurting out our theology or our understanding, trying to get people to understand our position. And, and you know where this happens the most? Is on the internet. When you have that sense of anonymity and no one really knows you, even Christians say and do things that are ungodly, that are not moving the, or advancing the gospel. So we need to share or show compassion and empathy in all things. We need to be sensitive to the culture. Now, uh, this is best example is a missionary going into another culture. They need to actually know and engage what are the things that make people tick, what is different between them and us. But you know what? The same is true for us as believers in this city because our culture is changing. It's changing rapidly. 
what we would say are the Judeo-Christian basics, the principles, are no longer accepted. They're, they're no longer the foundation. So we need to find out what people are thinking, how they're acting, what are the, 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 the moral basis upon which they, they work and live, and then meet them where they are. Now, that doesn't mean we have to accept or, or believe that these things are culture are right, but we need to know them and we need to engage them. We need to deal with prejudice, our prejudice and theirs. Because you know what? Despite how hard we try, each and every one of us has a bias. We find ourselves in situations where all of a sudden a thought will come to our mind or our heart will, will harden towards somebody and we'll say something. And, and you know what's ironic is that those people out there who say that they're not prejudiced are often the most prejudiced against the people who say they have concerns. So it, 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 it's really weird. But here's the thing is, is we have to start admitting that we're not perfect that we have resentment we need to deal with. We have, we look at people the wrong way, perhaps. We're prejudiced. We have judgmental attitudes. Too often we lack love. You know, Paul had to deal with that in this. He himself had to deal with his own prejudice about sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And then once he got off over that, he had to actually come back and deal with the inborn prejudice of the Jews. It was so... It was so ingrained that they had no ability to, to understand that the Jews are now part of the family of God and that so much of the cultural reality that had been them is now being just washed away. We need to major on the minor, or major on the majors, the essentials, and not the minors. For example, I know of a small church that uh, is north of Toronto. And they had asked me once, well, help us to understand how to engage people. Help us to, you know, what does it mean for evangelism? How do we tell people about Jesus Christ? The problem is, every time they ever got together, they were talking about theology. They were talking about the finer points of Reformed theology and God's saving grace and all of this kind. Of, but they lost their ability to share about Jesus Christ. And, and you know what? We have way too many hobby horses. We have way too many pet theologies. We need to put these aside and preach Christ. There's not to say that they're not important. They're very important, especially for a church. These are the things that we believe in. But we're called to share Jesus Christ. And those things that are not essential to understanding who Jesus Christ is and why he died for sinners needs to be laid by, by the wayside. And then lastly, fifth, we need to adjust our approach to the situation. We need to build bridges with people. We need to engage them where they are and use that as a leverage to share Jesus Christ. Now, in the dire circumstances that Paul found himself in in his arrest in Jerusalem, we see a man so given over to the purposes of God for his life, a man so willing to be spent for Jesus Christ that he calmly seizes every opportunity to advance the gospel, to preach Christ by being all things to all men. And it's a good lesson for us to contemplate this morning because how many chances do we lose in sharing the gospel every day? God's appointed moments of sharing even just a little bit about the love of Christ that sent him to the cross 
for sinners such as you and I. The one thing that I want you to remember this morning out of all of this is whatever the circumstances that our lives may be, our trust in God's purposes for us must lead us to be willing to expand our life for the sake of the advancing the gospel by being all things to all people. Just round out everything that's going on in these two chapters, two and a half chapters, and saying what is the overall purpose, the umbrella of everything that's happened. This is for us what we need to take home today. Now, again, Paul believed that God had brought him to Jerusalem. Paul believed that all the events that were happening were ordained by God to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And he was willing to embrace them to give of his life for Christ. Christ has brought you to this very point in your life, in your business, in your work, in your family, in your community. He is orchestrating the events around which He will be glorified as we share Christ. How eager, how willing are we to embrace each and every situation, even if it means being belittled in the eyes of others? Even if it means that we lay aside our own privileges? The question is, are we willing to be spent like Paul in every situation for the glory of Christ. Our Heavenly Father,